You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, let's turn again in our Bibles to Paul's letter to the Philippians, uh, from which we've just sung in Philippians chapter 2, and I want us to read there in Philippians chapter 3, uh, beginning to read at verse 1 through verse 15, and you'll find the passage uh, in the church Bible on page 1180, page 1180 in the church Bible, um, on your iPad and iPhone, you just have to find it. If you're intelligent enough to use one of these things, you're intelligent enough to find Philippians, which comes after Galatians and Ephesians. So, Philippians chapter 3, and uh, reading from verse 1, uh, David is away, and uh, he didn't ask me to begin the evening series in the morning, so I'll begin the evening series on Genesis 1 to 3 in the evening, and uh, I want to do a, a one-off this morning, and since uh, the, the pastoral groups are studying Philippians, I thought uh, I'll take a passage from Philippians that I presume you haven't uh, yet studied. And for those of you who are sitting there asking, no, I haven't consulted Let's Study Philippians, though I usually do agree with the author. Uh, I've no memory of what the author wrote in Philippians chapter 3, and uh, I have avoided reading him in this occasion. So, let's hear God's Word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh." Uh, Wherever Paul went, he was dogged, excuse the pun, by people who wanted to turn Christians into Jewish Christians and insisted that alongside their faith in Christ, they would also be circumcised. The Jews usually called Gentiles dogs. And so Paul, who is naturally a Jew, turns that language round and says it's the people who want you to be circumcised who are the dogs. And he describes them not as circumcisers in verse 2, but as mutilators of the flesh. We Christians, he says, who have put our faith in Christ, who was, you remember, cut off out of the land of the living, smitten for the transgressions of His people, as Isaiah prophesied, we who belong to the Christ who was cut off for our sins. We are the real circumcision. And so he says that we are to put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, 
persecuting the church as for legalistic righteousness, or better, as for righteousness according to the law, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. I don't know whether it's the same with you in your Christian life, but over the years I've often regularly found people often people I don't know, kind of interfering in my personal space and asking the question, what is your life verse? What is your life verse? What they want to know is, is there some special verse in the Bible that has meant something very special to you? And if there is, I want to know it. Somebody actually asked me that question during the course of this last week. Sometimes I think to myself, no, I don't have a life verse, and uh, even if I did have a life verse, do you think I would tell you, a total stranger to me, what that life verse actually is? And so sometimes in my whimsical moments, I've imagined eager beaver Christians bouncing up to the Apostle Paul and saying, do you have a life verse? And again, in my whimsical imagination, I imagine the Apostle Paul say, uh, yes, I do, and you should know what it is, because I wrote it in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 is actually the most personal account the Apostle Paul gives of what it meant for him to become a Christian that event, the Damascus Road event and all that surrounds it, is actually retold on three separate occasions in the course of the Acts of the Apostles. Paul makes various allusions to it throughout his letters, but it's only in this letter, his, his favorite church to which he is writing, that he goes into a little more detail about what actually happened on the inside 
in Paul's life when he first came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And in what ways did that transform his life? And what was it that became the heartbeat of his life? And I suppose if he did have a life text, it was here in Philippians chapter 3 when he tells us that his driving ambition is now that he wants to know Jesus Christ. And in these verses, he, he does three things. First of all, he tells us what he was by nature, his past life. Then he explains to us what he came to find in Jesus Christ. And then he tells us a little in the third place about how that transformed his life by God's grace. So, let's think about these three things from this passage. What does Paul say, first of all, about what he was by nature? Of course, he's writing, warning the Philippians about uh, a group of people, Judaizers as we sometimes call them, who he fears may pass through Philippi and say, well, what Paul taught you is all very well, but if you're really going to be a Christian, if you're really going to stand in the true line of Christians, you not only need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you also need to be circumcised. If you're not circumcised, you don't belong to the long, true line of believers that goes back right to the days of Abraham. And Paul is thinking about the way in which these people focus on the flesh. They do so literally, but in a, in a more complex way, Paul is saying what they're really doing is they're boasting on the grounds of what they have done and not on the grounds of what Jesus Christ has done for them. And as he thinks about them, he says to them, you know, if it comes to boasting, I can boast with the best of them. If it comes to boasting, I can boast with the best of them. There is nothing that they can boast in that I am not able to boast even more loudly than they are able to boast. And so he speaks about the reasons he had, before he became a believer, the reasons he had for confidence in the flesh, both in terms of his heredity and also in terms of his personal commitment. In terms of his heredity, he gives us his pedigree. He tells us that he was circumcised on the eighth day, that he belonged to Israel, that he was of the tribe of Benjamin, which of course was notable because it was the tribe from which the first king came, Saul, uh, who stood head and shoulders above all others. And he was a Hebrew speaker brought up in a Hebrew-speaking home. If anyone is able to boast about being the real deal, he says, uh, I can do so more. Uh, those of us in the congregation who hail from the United States, we, we, or you, I should say, you know what it is to meet somebody who will stretch themselves to their six feet one and say, 
I am a seventh-generation Texan, or I'm a fifth-generation Floridian, or even I'm a descendant of one of the Mayflower pilgrims. And you know what they're doing. They're they're trying to make you feel small, and they make themselves great. It's an accident of history that one of their ancestors was on the Mayflower, but they, they boast in it. They are somebody special because of their inheritance, and sometimes it doesn't seem to make any difference to pull yourself up to your six feet one inches tall and say, well, I'm a 45th generation Scot. That apparently doesn't really count in the, in the stakes. And we all know people like that who boast in their inheritance because they believe what they have inherited, although they contributed absolutely nothing to it, makes them special. And Paul is saying, if people want to boast that way, then I can top them. My pedigree is perfect. And not just was his pedigree perfect, but his personal performance was outstanding. He says when it came down to his own personal commitments, he says, well, first of all, I became a Pharisee. And of course, as you probably know, a little like the Christian church, Judaism was divided into little denominations. And the strictest of those denominations or sects was the sect of the Pharisees. And Saul of Tarsus had deliberately chosen to become a Pharisee. And you see what he's saying, not only in terms of inheritance, but in terms of commitment. I stand above them all. Not only that, but he goes on to say, as to zeal, I persecuted the church. And law, do you want to talk about law and obedience to the law and living the righteous life? As far as the law was concerned, I was regarded as blameless. He was able to say, as the rich young ruler, you remember in the Gospels, said to Jesus when Jesus rehearsed the commandments, he he said without a moment's thought, now all of these commandments I have kept from my youth. But it's interesting, in the middle of all that, he has slipped in the one telltale sign that I think led him to understand that none of this counted with God. It lies in these words, as to zeal, I persecuted the church. Why is that so significant? It's significant for this reason, not all Jews persecuted the church. Not all Pharisees persecuted the church. You read through the Acts of the Apostles, the early chapters of the Acts of the Apostles, and Saul of Tarsus's own theological professor, rather than persecute the church, said about the church, if this is from God, it will last. If it's not from God, it will not survive. We can just stand back and see what God does. And so, Paul is saying something very personal about himself here. He's actually, he is actually giving us what may be the single most important clue 
to his own conversion, and that was there was something in the church that brought forth an anger and a hatred. People among whom we live, they don't all persecute Christians, but from time to time, or perhaps in your case with great regularity, you bump into people who are angry about your Christian faith, angry about the gospel, angry about God. You sometimes wonder why people who don't believe in the existence of God are so angry about Him. And it's not a bad thing to remember to say to them, why does this God in whom you don't seem to believe make you so angry? Could it be because you really know that He is real? And that was certainly Saul's position. I think it's actually fairly easy to show it in the the pages of the New Testament. He's told us here that he was head and shoulders above everybody. Actually, in the first chapter of Galatians, he says, perhaps a little more modestly, he says, I was was outstripping most of those in my generation. Now, when somebody says that, you know they don't mean most of those. They mean all of those. And then something happened. Luke, who was one of Paul's best friends, gives us a clue in the Acts of the Apostles. He tells us how there was a young man called Stephen arose among the early Christians, and opposition arose to Stephen. Although he was full of God's grace, this is Acts 6 verse 8, he was full of God's power. He did great wonders and miraculous signs in the name of Jesus, but opposition arose to him and it arose to him from members of the synagogue of the freed men, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Now, why is that significant? Well, when Luke gives you little details that seem totally irrelevant, you know they must be specially significant. The reason that's significant is this synagogue that Luke has just described in the Acts of the Apostles is almost certainly the synagogue to which Saul of Tarsus belonged. He was from Tarsus, and Tarsus was in Cilicia. You know what happens when people come to a a big city from various ethnicities? They, They tend to huddle together. They go to the same churches. It's the place of security. It's the place where they're likely to find people who will help them, and that was happening in Jerusalem. And so, you see what was happening here in Saul's synagogue. Perhaps it was just the same number of people as we are. There was one young man. His name was Stephen, so he was obviously from outside of Jerusalem. Stephen's a Greek name. It's not a Hebrew Jewish name. He was from outside of Jerusalem. He was in the synagogue. And somehow or another, when he had opportunity to speak, he spoke about Christ. And he had this extraordinary ability to use the Scriptures to show that Jesus was the Messiah. And not only that, he was full of wisdom 
and grace. There was something about him that shone, and what most of all shone for Saul of Tarsus was that none of his arguments seemed to be able to get the better of Stephen's use of Scripture. And I think for the very first time in his life, he discovered somebody who was actually standing above him, and his life was markedly superior to his. Paul says a very interesting thing in Romans chapter 7 about his conversion. He says, the law came to him, and he felt the power of sin reviving in him, and he realized he was dead spiritually. Now, which of the commandments would you think got right into his soul and did this to him? Well, he tells us quite specifically, it was the tenth commandment, you shall not covet. Why that commandment? Why that commandment? I think because in all probability, for the first time in his life, he saw someone who was gracious, filled with Christ, could use the Scriptures in a way he couldn't, whose life showed such gracious power in it that he was left with two alternatives. This has happened to many people down through the ages, incidentally. He was left with two alternatives. He either needed to join him in his trust in Christ, or he needed to destroy him and his influence from his life. And clearly, as the Acts of the Apostles tells us, he chose to do the latter. But in God's mercy, God had chosen that what would happen to him would be the farmer and knocked him to the ground on the road to Damascus and said, what an illuminating moment this must have been for Saul of Tarsus. Saul, don't you realize you've been persecuting me? It was me you saw in Stephen. It was me you hated in Stephen. But it's been impossible for you to kick against the goads that I've been planting into your life. And now in order to show my mercy, I'm going to bring you to this living faith in myself so that instead of becoming more and more a persecutor, you'll become more and more a preacher of my saving grace and my keeping power. So, he's telling us here what he was by nature in order to magnify before us the second thing he speaks about, and that is what he found in Christ. Do you notice how he puts it here? He says, I want to be found in Jesus Christ, and I want to know Jesus Christ, and I want to gain Jesus Christ. And now his whole horizon is filled with Christ. It's interesting, actually, his horizon's not filled with his conversion story. His horizon is filled with the one who wrote that conversion story into his life. And he is just, he is just full of Christ this one who wanted to destroy Stephen because he was so obviously like Christ, now tells us 
He wants to be found in Christ. And why does he want to be found in Christ? Well, look at verse 9. He says, I want to be found in Christ, no longer having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but having the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, what's he saying here? He's really saying here, as long as I try to become righteous by the standards of God's law, I'm always going to fail. He actually didn't think he had failed until Stephen came along. And when Stephen came along, it was like God's light shining into his life, this Christ-likeness that exposed the it was like lifting a stone and all the wee beasties suddenly appearing and scurrying around. The light of Christ in Stephen's life was like the lifted stone in Saul's soul, and all the beasties of his soul began to scurry out from the darkness. And he realized that trying to be righteous in the sight of God by keeping the law was a pathway that was doomed to failure and ultimately to spiritual disaster. But now that he was in Christ, now that he was found in Christ, he realized that he had been counted righteous with a righteousness that was not his own, but Jesus' righteousness. And here's the thing, the person who trusts in Jesus Christ for Christ's righteousness knows that from that moment onwards, he or she, listen to this, is as righteous before God as Jesus Christ Himself is righteous, because the only righteousness with which I am righteous before God is Jesus Christ's righteousness. That's a stunning reality, my friends. That's such a powerful reality. It can, it can take from our hearts all our burden of sin and guilt and shame, that we are no longer trying to climb up to that righteousness, or hoping that by the end of our lives we will have attained that righteousness, but that righteousness is given to us the moment we are in Jesus Christ, the moment we trust in Jesus Christ. And this righteousness that it's, that's given to us because it's His righteousness before His Father means that I can stand before Him as righteous as the Lord Jesus, not in my own righteousness according to the law, He says, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I wonder if you're in the position of thinking that uh, you have a long way to go, and you hope at the end of the day that you will have amassed enough righteousness to stand before God. And the best you're ever going to say is you hope that you'll achieve that, but you know you never will. Think of the glorious release. Think of the joy and the power of knowing that you are as secure in the presence of God as His own Son is 
because his righteousness has become your righteousness as a gift, just as your sinfulness has become his judgment on the cross by his grace. And so he wants to be found in Christ so that he can have this righteousness. And he also wants to be found in Christ because he realizes that all of the privileges, all of the blessings of God's grace are to be found in Jesus Christ. He is the only fountainhead. He is the only stream of all of the blessings of the gospel and of God's goodness. And that's why he says, think about the way he describes him. He calls Christ the one in whom he has found the surpassing privilege of knowing him as his Lord. And he's actually, he's straining at language. He's saying it's not just a, it's not just a privilege to know Christ, it's a surpassing privilege to know Christ. He says in verse 8 here, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And uh, what he means by that is that Christ has become everything to him. Christ is the one in whom he finds a righteousness that secures him before God. And Christ is one in whom he has found just a surpassingly great privilege of knowing him. It's not surprising the Apostle Paul speaks about Christ so much, boasts about Christ so much. You know the influence it has on you if you, if you met somebody famous, somebody who had really accomplished something you know how in your modest way you just kind of let it out from time to time that you were with so-and-so? And, -so. and uh, it's a very natural thing to, to boast in that. Uh, the sad thing is we're usually boasting about ourselves, aren't we? But what Paul is doing here is he's boasting about the one whom he's come to know in the gospel. And, and you can almost... You can almost sense his Jewish lips just uh, licking themselves as he, as he uses this language of the, not just the greatness of knowing Christ, but the greatness of knowing Christ as my Lord. And then to, to top that off, the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. What does that lead to? Well, it leads to this. He wants to know him better. That's the great thing about Christ. We know him and his surpassing greatness, but he says, I, I want to know him better and better. I want to be made like him. I want to be conformed to him. And of course, you do, you do begin to look like the people with whom you live, don't you? At least you become like them. Actually, the, the truth is, you know, if you see if you see a 50-something-year-old man who looks as though he's never been married or a woman walking down the road with their dog, it's amazing the number of times you think to yourself, my, these two actually look like each other. Why is that? Well, I've never had a dog, but I've seen dog owners. You know, they'll get the dog and moo, boo, 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 and they begin to make the same facial expressions. 
you actually do get to be like the people you live with. You, you, you live, as it were, constantly responding to them and, and in a way become a mirror image of them. And something of the same order is true of Jesus. When you live with Jesus, you become like Jesus. Where, where, do, you think, where do you think Paul learned that? He learned at the very beginning of his Christian life, didn't he? For the first time in his life, he saw somebody his own age, perhaps even younger, who reminded him of everything he'd heard about this Jesus of Nazareth, because Stephen had been living with Jesus. So, this is what he was by nature. This is what he had found in Christ. And I want you to notice just for a minute what that did to him by grace. All this is very wonderful. It is a wonderful thing to know Christ, but it radically changes the whole of our lives. And Paul mentions several things here. The first thing he mentions is this, to know Christ like this creates a kind of holy, H-O-L-Y, a kind of holy dissatisfaction. Don't raise your hands, but any of you fellows just fallen in love? or girls the other way round, and it's so, in such a new and fresh way, it's so satisfying to be with somebody you love and who loves you. But uh, the moment you're away from them, you are dissatisfied until you can be with them more, until you can have more of the same. That's how relationships work, isn't it? And the same is true of the Lord Jesus. And Paul says, it's, it's not as though I've attained everything. Verse 12, I haven't obtained all this, or I haven't already been made perfect. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. It's, it's just remarkable. The more you know Christ, the more you want to know Christ. How could anyone think that the Christian life was dull unless they lived outside of it? Because there are endless treasures to discover in Jesus Christ. And so, knowing Him is both satisfying and at the same time creates this holy dissatisfaction, this thirst for more. The second thing this did for Paul, and I think this is so helpful to us. He mentions it in verse 13, I think, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it all, but one thing I do, knowing Christ produces a holy dissatisfaction, it also produces a single-minded simplicity. This one thing I do. Now, uh, we know that there were companions with Paul when he wrote this. Timothy was one of them. He tells us in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, if I were Timothy, I'd be, I'd be leaning over his shoulder and saying, Paul, no porkies here. No little fibs or lies here. I've, you are the ultimate multitasker. And I can tell you from your own letters that you say this, you're always doing this, and you're always doing this, and you're, in addition, you're always doing that, and then you're always caring about the churches, and you're always praying, and you're always writing, you're always preaching, you're always moving. You never did one thing in all your life. 
You're always doing a thousand things. So tell them you do a thousand things. Don't tell them you do only one thing. I think Paul would have turned to Timothy and said, have you not got it yet? I am not doing a thousand things. I am doing one thing in a thousand different ways, in everything. When I'm with others, when I'm preaching the gospel, when I'm at my work, when I'm making tents, when I'm praying, when I'm burdened, when I'm moving, in all the thousand things we do, he says, the great thing about being a Christian believer is that everything begins to fit together because you're doing one central thing, and that is knowing and loving and serving and honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the third thing he tells us, knowing Christ does for us, creates a holy dissatisfaction, produces a single-minded simplicity. And it also teaches us a genuine spiritual accountancy. You notice when we read this passage, a number of times Paul uses the term loss. He says, for the sake of Christ, I count everything as loss. Indeed, he says, I have lost all things. He probably meant that literally. He was almost certainly disinherited when he became a Christian, so he really did lose everything but you can lose everything and still want to have it. And what Paul says is that by comparison with the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord, everything else by comparison. He's not saying he hates the world. not saying that his food tastes ghastly. He's not saying it's horrible to have friends. He's saying by comparison with knowing Jesus Christ, everything else I could ever do or accomplish, I really have to put that in the loss column of my life. It isn't as important as I used to think it was. Indeed, he says, I count all of it at the end of the day as garbage by comparison with knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. It's really amazing, isn't it? I remember when I was a theological student, we had to… the Greek text of Philippians was a prescribed text, and I was sitting in the university library working through the Greek text of Philippians, and I came to this word. It's a word, skubalon, and I thought, I wonder… I wonder what all the meanings that word might have. And I reached out for my, my Greek lexicon, written by a very proper Englishman. And I looked up the word skubalon and the various meanings. And then this wonderfully proper English scholar of the uh, language of the New Testament said at the end, this word skubalon, I count all things as skubalon by comparison with the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. Scubalon, he said, usually translated dung. Usually translated dung, excrement. Now, how is that possible? 
It's not possible by looking at the world and saying, this is a horrible world because it's a wonderful world. But he's saying, everything I can possibly accomplish in this life, everything I could possibly obtain and own in this life by comparison with owning Jesus Christ, being found in Jesus Christ, and knowing Jesus Christ by comparison. It's an irrelevance to me, whether I'm rich or poor, whether I'm wise or simple, whether I'm old or young, whether I achieve great things or live the most modest and ordinary of lives. I count everything as a loss by comparison with the sheer surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Is that where we are, my friends? Are you, are you inside of this or are you outside of it? Do you need refreshed in this because you once knew it and it's become clouded and distant? Isn't it interesting that Paul actually ends this little section by saying, all of us who are mature should take such a view of these things. You know, we speak about Christian maturity. What's the real mark of Christian maturity? It's that you see the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ, that you want to know Him and that you want to know Him more and more and more. Years and years ago, when uh, our boys were small, one of them looked as though he might become a significantly good golfer and therefore furnish me with my retirement. And uh, I took him to the Open Championship at Troon, and we followed the man who was then by far the greatest golfer in the world, Jack Nicklaus. And he wasn't doing so well, so the less than faithful began to kind of melt away. And those of us who were the true faithful ones, we would follow him to the end. And he came down from playing one of the holes. He came off the plateau green and down to the next tee. That's for those of you who don't play golf where you start the next hole. And he turned round, and I was standing there with my boy. Who was, he was just a small boy. I was holding his hand, I think. And Jack Nicklaus, the greatest golfer possibly in all history, looked straight into my eyes, straight into my eyes, and they stayed there. It seemed like for an hour. <laughs> but it was probably only three or four seconds. And then he seemed to come awake as though he had been in a dream. He, he, he went like that. And I could see in his face, how do I know this man and his little boy? Where have I met them before? Is this a, am I so caught up in this game I don't realize this is the man who has meant so much to me in my life? And he shook his head. He turned on and played the rest of his round. <laughs> and our little boy looked up to me and he said to me, he said, Dad, does Jack Nicholas know you? And I wanted so much to say, Jack and I were at school together, <laughs> and I taught him everything he knows. But in honesty, I said, no. I think he must have confused me with somebody else. 
But at the same time, I was thinking, but there is someone greater than Jack Nicholas who knows me and whom I know, and who I trust knows you and you know him. And by comparison with that, even knowing Jack Nicholas, it would be totally insignificant because he is such a great Savior. So are you inside or outside? That's the question. I pray you're inside and see him in this way. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the surpassing greatness of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. We pray that our horizon too will be filled with him and that you will help us to live for his glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.